This is Hockey Central 960 with Haley Salvian on your official home of the Flames, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Hello, everybody. It is a new week here on Hockey Central on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Haley Salvian here with you for the next hour. We've got a Tuesday pad chat, and we're not going to wait this time because you know our guest of honor our weekly guest of honor pat steinberg he's got a three-hour edition of flames talk to get to this afternoon so you're getting a lot of pat and we're going to bring him in here now off the top of the show on the atlas pizza guest hotline it's pat steinberg your host of flames talk on sports at 960 the fan pat got a big day thanks for taking more time out to talk to me i'm honored you know it's just it's just what everybody wants. They want. They just can't can't get enough of the world's most average sports talk host. Oh, Pat! <laughs> don't say Pretty that. I mean, I wait. am the queen of you know pessimism, self doubt, et cetera, et cetera. But don't be bringing that energy onto the show. Not in twenty twenty three. I just thought it would be well. Uh, I just thought it would be well received on this show in particular. Yeah. Yeah, you know, if if this was like a text conversation and not live on the air, I would have said something more like, no, that would be me. Or, you know, I'm more average than you. Better to be exactly. average than terrible, like me. <laughs> something along those lines. It's very accurate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, obviously bringing you on right off the top of the show today, and we will talk to Eric DeHatchik. He's a senior national writer at The Athletic later on in the show, but we want to kick it off with Pat uh, because obviously it was a pretty big game for the Calgary Flames. In Calgary last night, Johnny Gaudreau making his return to the Saddle Dome. Seems like there was more booing than the Matthew Kachuk return game. Uh, I'm wondering if you could take us inside the Dome for, for those who weren't at the game and who maybe didn't get the, the total vibe from watching it on the broadcast. What was the atmosphere at the Dome like with Johnny Gaudreau stepping in for the first time since leaving the Calgary Flames this summer? You know, I was thinking about it after because, first of all, like Monday was awesome for a game between Calgary and the last place team in the NHL on a Monday night at seven thirty in the middle of January. Like usually that is prime time for just a, a library of a crowd and not just in Calgary, but in any building in the NHL, that's just not your typical uh, hot night in the middle of the regular season, but it was it was one of the best crowds of the year, and and obviously the reason why was because it was Johnny's return, and I I was thinking about it after the game and thinking about it all day today because it was such an awesome night and such a a cool atmosphere to be a part of and and just to feel the juice and and see how both teams fed off that juice and and everything that went into it it kind of reminded me of like a wrestling show honestly like Johnny Gaudreau was was Mr. McMahon in his heyday and uh people were like that I I've never been at a hockey game and I've never been in the building when a guy is booed every time he's on the uh, jumbotron and booed anytime he's mentioned and booed not only every time he touches the puck, which we were used to, we saw it with Matthew Kachuk. We've seen it with Dion Phaneuf and Drew Doughty and guys like that before, but this is every time he touched the ice, like people were fixated on Johnny Gaudreau. And when he hit the ice for a line change or, or on the fly, or they, they made a change at a whistle. As soon as those skates hit the ice, people were booing. So it was awesome. It was, and, and you know what? I think 
had had there been anything that that crossed the line or anything that that became personal or anything like that, I, I think it would have been a different story. But nothing did. You know, there were some uh, some Johnny chants and and obviously booing them every time they had the opportunity. But you know, there was nothing. There was nothing over the line. There was nothing malicious. It was just people were upset because he left. Everybody had a right to boo the guy. I still don't think that he um, – I don't still – I still don't think he did anything wrong, and I don't believe Johnny Gaudreau did anything out of malice when he eventually decided to not re-sign with Calgary and then, whatever, 12, 15 hours later sign with the Columbus Blue Jackets. I never felt like <laughs> yeah. it was calculated. I never felt like it was um, uh, d- done to string them along or purposely to mislead them. I honestly think he, he said it yesterday – he said it every time he's spoken about it. And just knowing what I know about the situation, the guy was as indecisive as humanly possible. And a big part of him wanted to stay in Calgary. Obviously, he didn't. And he decided to go elsewhere. And because of the indecisiveness, and I think the indecisiveness came from a good place. I really do. I think it came from a place of being torn and, and having huge emotional ties to this city, but also having huge emotional ties to his family and wanting to be a little bit closer to home. And so I think he was torn for the right reasons, but that doesn't mean that as a Flames fan, you can't be frustrated or upset that A, he left, uh, and, and B, it went the way that it did and went down to the 11th hour and everything that went into it. So, you know, it was one of those, it's, it's been one of those scenarios where I think, especially as um, the two teams hit the ice last night, it was kind of like, yeah, you know what? Two things can be true at the same time. Did Johnny do anything wrong no did are our flames fans doing anything wrong by showing their displeasure at the decision he made also no so it was uh it was a really neat night the atmosphere was great flames got the two points maybe not as uh seamlessly or as easily as they would have liked but they still did and yeah it was a uh it was a really fun monday at the dome Johnny Gaudreau had the right to leave Calgary as an unrestricted free agent and Calgary Flames fans have the right to take his explanations and and take everything the way that they want and be disappointed and boom for it. Yep. Do they think be true? You know, like we're not here to police the way that Flames fans or fans of any team in general handle a situation like that. Just like we, you know, I'm not going to judge Johnny Gaudreau for, you know, making a decision that, he and his family see best for the future. But I I think that indecisiveness and how late into the game it got and, you know, it gave everyone that rug pulled out feeling, right? Because I I know you and I, like, you know, it it seemed like they were moving in the right direction. Every time we'd heard from something, it's Johnny wants to stay and Bradtree Living feels optimistic about the the situation. So I feel like there were reasons for fans to be optimistic until until there wasn't at all. And it was too late and he was saying, I'm done. So I think that part compared to Matthew Kachuk giving the Flames the time and the heads up and a list of teams and the opportunity to trade him to, you know, a team that they could get a return for is maybe one of the reasons why the response is different. And I mean, Johnny has been there longer too, so there's more feeling and passion behind that. But I wonder if that's part of the reason why. I think Matthew had... The response of, you know, he got the the ovation when he first, you know, with the video, 
But then the first time he touched the puck after that, he got booed. He wasn't getting booed every single time he stepped on the ice. So I feel like, you know, it's a different situation. Matthew was a restricted free agent. Johnny's a UFA. But I feel like the way they both went about it probably colored the way that fans felt about it. And the fact that he went to, you know, the last place team in the league instead of Calgary. That, that yeah, hurts, and, I'm sure. <laughs> and, and I think I think the, you know, at first people were like, Columbus, I thought you wanted to go to Philly or New Jersey or be closer to home or Boston. And, you know, I don't think the some of the teams that um, we thought might be landing places, I don't think outside of New Jersey, I don't believe there was ever a, you know, real competitive offer put on the table by the Islanders or, or the Flyers. I think New Jersey put an offer on the table, but I don't think it was the offer that he and his camp were looking for. And right. so when Columbus brought their offer to the table, it ended up being the one that they felt was the, the best uh, monetarily for him. And yeah, I think, I think, you know, the, it's, it's funny because on the Matthew front, like Matt, Matthew on the one hand gave Brad true living an opportunity to trade him and the GM made a great trade with the Florida Panthers. And I think there were two or three other options on the table that I, they, they did not have the same type of right now return, but also had you know pretty good future return or younger players coming back in them. They all would have been huge deals. And, and Matthew Kachuk gave them enough lead time. Not, we're not talking about, massive amounts of time but gave him enough lead time to be able to make a trade and be able to get something done and get a good return for him obviously johnny gaudreau didn't do that but the circumstances were different because they weren't going to trade him at the deadline when they were in the playoff race sides were close to a deal if you remember uh, prior to last season like just before training camp they were really really close and then for whatever reason they fell apart so both sides agreed not to um, not not to have contract negotiations from that point forward and so when you're in that spot and as as unrestricted free agency moves closer and the trade deadline passes and you're right they weren't going to trade him last year with the year he was having and the year they were having and I think Johnny did a big part of him did still want to sign back in Calgary but as deadlines spur action the the decision was made by his camp not to not to stay but he was minutes away from signing that eight times ten and a half million dollar dollar deal and and we know he didn't but like it was close. Like I, I think they got a verbal agreement from Johnny and the camp to sign, and then it kind of went the other direction. And here we are. Whereas, you know, in terms of the want to be in Calgary scale, it was way higher on the Johnny front. Matthew didn't want to be here. He said, "I'm not signing long term. And if you want to trade me, trade me. But as soon as you, as soon as I finish out my obligations with one year left, and and you can qualify me." Well, then I'm out and, mm-hmm. and I'm not re-signing here. I'll leave in unrestricted free agency. So you know, Johnny was the one who wanted to be here, I think, more than Kachuk did. But because of the circumstance, uh, they weren't able to get a return for Johnny. And so for the best of the organization, yes, it was definitely one of those scenarios where Matthew put them in a better spot. So I can see it from both sides. And again, the vitriol was definitely hotter or or more palpable on the Gaudreau front because that was a hot building and they they wanted to show their displeasure 
to number 13 in white last night. They did. And I thought everybody did so respectfully and well within uh, the boundaries of professional sports. And uh, that was the best part about it because Johnny took it in stride. Um, his teammates took it in stride. The crowd was awesome. The game was pretty decent. The atmosphere was the best part of Monday's game. So it, it turned out to be, I think, all things considered, a really positive night if you're a Flames fan. Absolutely. Just reading through the text line a little bit here, one uh, commenter kind of said what you said, Pat. You know, Gaudreau was wanting to stay and it was a tough choice. Whereas Kachuk was like, no, I'm getting out of here. Zero, inten zero intention of staying in Calgary. Uh, another question, you know, if Johnny stayed, does Kachuk still leave? That's a really tough one. Um, I think based on what we know of Kachuk wanting to leave, maybe not. But at the same time, it's hard to, to answer that question. I think if Johnny stays, do the Flames have enough money to sign Matthew Kachuk to a contract that is fair market value is probably one of the big questions that the team was facing. Yep. How do you afford both of them plus Andrew Mangiapane, plus Oliver Shillington, and plus all the other things that they wanted to do this offseason? Um, one of the questions in the text line for you, Pat, before we maybe move on from the Johnny conversation and on to the current roster, uh, is Johnny Gaudreau a one-day signing in Calgary to end his career candidate? Like, is that a piece of his legacy that you see happening? Or is this just kind of over and he's no longer in the conversation of, you know, franchise icons because he left in the way that he did it? I think, you know, the way I think about it is, so he spent eight seasons. So, you know, better part, you know, better part of a decade or pretty close to a decade as a member of the Calgary Flames, it's a long time. Now, they only got to the second round twice while he was here. They did not have uh, a ton of team success in the postseason with Johnny as a member of the team, which I think plays into his legacy, especially now. I think that's a different conversation if he spends his entire career as a member of the Flames, but obviously he's not. So I, I would suggest probably not. You know, so the I, I think of some of the guys who have – finished or, or who did not finish their careers rather in Calgary, but did end up coming back and, you know, reconciling or, you know, putting a bow or, or giving some closure to their time in Calgary. I think about, uh, I think about Joe Newendike and Al McKinnis when they were inducted into the controversial forever aflame program and they both did their news conferences. I mean, McKinnis's legacy in Calgary is a little less complicated than Newendike's. Uh, Newendike was a guy that, very similarly, it was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm probably not going to sign here. It was in a contract dispute, and they ended up trading him in a year where he was holding out, and they traded him to Dallas, and, and obviously got Jerome Gimla back. Jerome Gimla requested a trade, but came back and retired as a member of the Calgary Flames. But these, I think, you know, in the Newendike case, the McKinnis case, there was a Stanley Cup victory for both of them. In Jerome's case, he's Jerome. Took him to the 2004 Stanley Cup final and everything that went into that. So I think that those those things are a little bit different. I would suggest that you know when we're when it's all said and done, we look back on Johnny Gaudreau as a really solid member of this team and and a really exciting member of this team. But I don't know if he I don't know if he has a lasting legacy quite the same way because we didn't see the playoff success because it ended the way that it ended. But my guess would be he wouldn't be a candidate for something like that, but that's just a guess. And that's just, that's just conjecture on my part, but it doesn't have the, the same feel as some of those other guys do, you know? 
Absolutely. And I, but I think the difference would have been is if he stayed on that eight year deal and maybe became the next captain and kind of did all those things that were potentially, you know, wink, wink on the table for Johnny Gaudreau, like then the legacy is no longer in question. Now there's question marks and holes that we can poke in it. Whereas if he stayed and if he was the captain and if they did end up having playoff success because the core finally started clicking in the right direction, you know, even without the playoff success, I don't think his legacy in Calgary is a question mark. Now it is. Uh, moving on to the game from last night, Pat, and even the one against the Tampa Bay Lightning, but more specifically last night, the Michael Backlund line, uh, how good have they been in the last, last night or, or just recently for you? Well, I think they've had one off night in like the 18 or 19 games they've been put put back together. They got uh, they got caved in pretty good, like everybody did against Colorado. Otherwise, I mean they they've had they've had a really good run. And you know we talk about we talk about Johnny Gaudreau, and and he was one of the better, more dangerous players on the ice. He was dancing around. He and Line a combined for five points in the overtime loss for Columbus last night. But other than Boone Jenner's goal to tie the game at 3-3 in the third period, we were talking about all power play points at five on five. You know, Gaudreau was dangerous. Don't get me wrong. But the backland line did a really good job against Gaudreau in that line at five on five. They have them in their own zone a lot. They spent a lot of time, the backland line did, on the attack. Uh, a lot of time generating offense. Manjapani scores the big goal in the second period to regain the lead for the Flames. So that line has just been what you would call a um, – they, they have been one of the best kind of matchup lines that you'll find in the NHL, at, at least for me. Like they have – when they go out there, it does not matter if they're matched up against other teams' third lines or if they're going up there against top and uh, top six or top lines. They, they go out, they win the battle on the possession side of things. They outshoot, outattempt the other team when they're on the ice. They get scoring opportunities, and they don't give up much. Because they spend so much time on the attack, they tend to very rarely give anything up. And that was the case against Columbus yesterday. I believe they finished 3 nothing in terms of high-danger chances. Um, they ended up uh, scoring the goal. I believe they were just under 80% when it comes to possession. It was just a really solid outing for them. And that has been what we've come to expect from back when Mangiapane and Coleman. I think it's safe to say that Coleman's playing the best hockey uh, he's played as a member of the Calgary Flames, just saying something, because he's been a pretty good player for them his entire tenure since signing. Michael Backlund might be playing the best hockey of his career, which again is saying something knowing what we've come to know and expect from Michael. And Andrew Mangiapane's season is really starting to turn the corner. And that's maybe the most important and the most positive aspect of all of it is that Mangiapane's game is really starting to come around. And that was an area where they really needed um, some improvement in the second half of the season, they needed more production in the second half of the season because we're talking about a guy who is was was such an important part of their offense last year and had really dropped off production-wise in the first half of this season. Well, you know, the with what we're seeing from the hard work that line's putting in, from what we're seeing with the type of opportunities those guys are getting on a regular basis, it felt like Mangiapane was in store for 
a much better second half of the season. And it, it feels like that's happening right now. It feels like he's really starting to uh, find it offensively. The chances have been there for a while, but now we're starting to see some finish, whether it be him and pucks coming off his stick or whether we're talking about the line as a whole. So that's a, that's a really good sign. Maybe the most positive sign of all is what we're seeing from uh, Andrew Mangiapane's game and how it looks like his game is really starting to turn the corner and really starting to get on the track the Flames needed to be on. Among all forward lines that have played at least 100 minutes to this point in the season, the Mangiapane coleman backland line are second in the NHL per evolving hockey and expected goals percentage which is at a, just under 73%, and that's behind only the Jack Hughes, Jesper Bratt, and Eric Halla combination that the Devils have thrown out there. Um, so again, second in the league among lines that have played at least 100 minutes in that expected goal number, which essentially, in layman's terms, you know, to not just talk about analytics, just means that this is a team in your eye test can match that. It's what you said too, Pat, is they're spending more time in the offensive zone than the D zone. And when they're in the D zone, they can quickly transition out. They are generating more offense when they are on the ice than the opposition is. Um, And then the actual production, the actual goals aligns with that as well. This is a line that's been on the ice for, you know, at a per 60 rate, three goals for per 60 minutes played at five on five and less than one goal against. Um, so this is a group that's not only, you know, spending more time in the O zone than the D zone, um, but they are outscoring, outproducing their opposition when they're on the ice. So it's great stuff from the Mangiapane Coleman backland combination. Um, Dan Vladar is on a 12 game point streak, Pat, the fifth goalie in flames franchise history to do so. What are you seeing that's allowed him to get to this point? Is it something new and different and improved from Dan Vladar? Is it the team playing better in front of him? I'm sure it's a a combo of both, but, but what have you seen in uh, the improvements? Well, not improvements, I should say, but just this impressive streak that Vladar is on right now. Well, uh, first of all, the um, the team is definitely giving him more scoring. So there's been more offensive support for Vladar without question uh, when he's been in as opposed to Jacob Markstrom. I think, you know, we even asked Jason LaBarbera about that on last night's the goaltending coach on last night's postgame show, and he said, Look, if there is nothing to that, it's a coincidence. We're not talking about a group that plays better in front of Vladar because they're nervous in front of Markstrom and, and that type of thing, which I which is, is kind of where I am too. I know there has been uh, or there have been some suggestions of that, but definitely Vladar has gotten more run support, which has allowed him to, even on nights where he hasn't been great, uh, it's allowed him to you know finish with a win or a point. You know, take a look at the comparison between the two goaltenders. It's also fair to say that Vladar has been the better guy. I think he's been a little less prone to the soft goals, which is a big reason why he's got this record that he's got. Um, He's made timely stops, and and he's been the – and not – you know, Markstrom's shown this as well, but he's done a good job of – 
you know, when maybe it hasn't been the greatest first 40 minutes, but the team's got a one-goal lead anyway, he shuts the door in the third period. So, I mean, neither numbers, neither goaltender's numbers are stellar right now. One of them's just above 900. The other's below 900. You take a look at the, the goaltenders where I, I think that, uh, I think Dan is 34th or 38th among goaltenders in save percentage with 500 or more minutes played and Markstrom's 49th. Um, so there's, there's no question that Vladar has been the better guy. And, and while goaltending has not been, at least in my opinion, the, uh, the strength that we thought it would be just as a position for the Flames this year, I, I still think you've got the option right now to kind of run them as a tandem for the time being. And you don't need to look at it as a number one, number two scenario because Vladar deserves to play more because Vladar gives them the better chance to win in the current here and now moment. And, and he's just, you know, what I like about Vladar and, and what I think has allowed him to have success and, and really build on that success, he's just such an easygoing guy. And he approaches things in a really easygoing manner. Like, he's very, he's very dialed. He works his tail off. His practice habits are great. But, you know, when, when there's a, a loss, he doesn't get too down on himself. As frustrated as he is, and as much as he feels like he lets the team down, sometimes more so than he even needs to, you know, that gets forgotten pretty quickly. And he definitely does not get too high when he's having success. So I, I really like Dan's mental approach. And I think it's a big reason why he's been able to have success with the largest starting load that he's had uh, as, as an NHL goaltender. And he's probably, depending on what happens after the all-star break, like we could be talking about, he's on pace for 28 starts right now. Could be talking about 32, 33 when it's all said and done, depending on the way things go. And he's handled it really well so far. He's also incredibly kind. I know that's not something that always matters when you're trying to figure out who's a starting goalie. And that's not me saying that Jacob Markstrom is not a kind person. But I remember, you know, so many times last year thinking, like, if this guy was in front of the, you know, mass Toronto media, he would be as popular and talked about as Jack Campbell. You know how often, you know, everyone just talks about how nice Jack Campbell is in Toronto. That was the storyline all the time. It's like, yeah, if, if Dan Vladar was plopped into that media core, he would just be all over the place as, you know, super Agreed. sweet, nice guy, Dan Vladar. Uh, just a little peek behind the curtain there. Really, really lovely person. Easy to deal with from the media perspective. Last question, Pat, before I let you go get ready for your next three hours of radio. Jacob Peltier finally gets into the lineup. He plays two games. Uh, he plays against Tampa, plays against Columbus. He hasn't had a ton of of playing time, uh, but he's looked good in in what we've in the ways we've seen him. Like, what are your first impressions of Jacob Peltier in the NHL? It's been fine. Like, I, I think I, I definitely would like to see him get into game number three, based on what I've seen so far. Um, it's been limited action. You're right. He's only played, I think he was just under seven in his first game and just under eight in last night's game. So we haven't seen him play a lot, but in, in the minutes that he's shown, he's been solid. They, they've spent more time on the attack than not with him, with him there. Um, he has shown the ability to be around the net offensively. And I just, you know, he got stripped of the puck in one shift last night and it didn't really lead to anything, but still you're like, okay, that's, that's a turnover that I'm sure they'll talk about uh, with him. But for the most part, he's just made 
smart, poised plays in his limited time, and he's been dangerous at times as well. So, you know, he's been he, – he adds some speed. He adds some energy. His skill set translates well to a fourth-line role in the NHL and, and has so far in two games. I've liked him a lot, and, you know, it's a very limited body of work so far. And Brett Ritchie is close to returning, which throws a, a little bit of a wrinkle into this because I think when Ritchie's ready, we will see him come back in and we will see a couple of Flames roster moves. But Pelche's been, Pelche's been solid. And right now, all he can do in his limited time here with the, uh, with the NHL team, all he can do is earn that next game. So far in the two games he's played, the six periods he's played, he's been reliable. He has not made a ton of mistakes. He's been dangerous at times. So for me, I'm, I'm going right back to him Thursday against Chicago. I'm putting him back in. Don't know if that's the way the Flames are going to go. But for me, yeah, I'm going right back to Pelche again and giving him a third game. In fact, I'm not, I'm not taking apart that line. Lewis, Dewar, and Pelche, they've put together a, a pretty nice little run as a fourth line. Awesome stuff, Pat. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, again, this is Pat Steinberg on the weekly Pat Chat, and he's got a three-hour edition of Flames Talk coming up this afternoon. So I appreciate you, you know, talking a little bit more Flames with me on this Tuesday. Thank you, friend. Talk next week. All right. There goes Pat Steinberg on the Atlas Pizza Guest Hotline. The Guest Hotline is brought to you by Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar. Using the same recipe since 1975, you can dine in at 6060 Memorial Drive Northeast, or you can get takeout or delivery at 403-248-3344. Coming up next on Hockey Central on Sportsnet 960, we're going to bring on Eric Dehatchik from The Athletic. He had a great piece on Bruce Boudreau and, you know, what Rick Tockett is facing over the weekend and maybe look at what some trade fits could be for the Calgary Flames and around the league. That's coming up next on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. You're listening to Hockey Central 960 with Haley Salvian on your home of the Flames, Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Welcome back to the program. We've got about 20, 15 to 20 minutes left of the show. It's Tuesday. It's a new week on Hockey Central here on Sports at 960. It's having a little chat in the text line while we were on break just about, you know, the, the backland line and, you know, expected goals isn't all that's important. You know, actual production is where it's at. And, and I agree. I think sometimes we can focus too much on expected goals at the end of the day, you need guys to finish. I do think expected goals is an interesting indicator of where teams are playing the most. And in this case, the eye test again would suggest that that is a line combination that spends more time in the offensive zone than the D zone. The finishing ability of course can have, you know, that question mark, you want them to be better. You want them to score more sure. Um, But in terms of where they're spending the most time, that's important. And, you know, in terms of their, actual goal differential that line ranks within the top 10 in terms of the actual goals for percentage they're in the top 10 expected goals they are second in the nhl with that we're going to go to the atlas pizza guest hotline because we have eric dehatchik waiting for us he's a senior national writer uh with me at the athletic obviously more senior in terms of uh you know how long he's been doing this job than I have spent 20 years covering the Calgary Flames. I'm sure you all listening know him well. Eric, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. 
Great. Well, well, you had an awesome piece on like, Bruce yeah, Boudreaux. I, I was waiting for you to, to, to mention how many years that I've been doing it. Four, 45. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. And I was trying to make sure I, I said this, the senior national writer, and you've been doing this way longer than me, but I wasn't trying to make it, you know. You know, he's way older than me. Make feel old. I, 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 <laughs> I was trying my best, but no, he's been doing this for a while. Uh, obviously, an important and, you know, big voice in, in the hockey space. And you had a great piece on Bruce Boudreaux on The Athletic over the weekend. You know, a, a bit of a sentiment, you know, Jim Rutherford has spent decades. He spent a long time running NHL teams, and, and he's somebody who should know how this works by now. Uh, well, they went about it in this horrible way that, you know, it was a big show for, for several weeks. Will they, won't they fire him? Bruce Boudreaux is, you know, emotional. He booked his flight home a week and a half before he was even actually fired by the team because he just kind of knew when it was going to happen. Um, the organization is, you know, taking this on the teeth and now Rick Tockett is a big task ahead of them. What did you make of that entire situation that continues to be headline news after weeks of discussion about the Vancouver Canucks? Yeah, well, I mean, they failed to do the one important thing that I think every senior management team has to do, which is simply do the right thing. Like, do the right thing. I mean, that, that should be your mantra in life. Uh, but for sure, it should be if you're running a, a hockey organization, and especially if you're a, an organization in transition like, like Vancouver is. So I get that they, you know, when Jim Rutherford went in and hired Patrick Alvin, they, they were in the process of assembling their own team. That, that, that's the, that's the playbook. That that is what what many many teams and organizations have done in the past, and that's fine up to a point. But then, if you've made a decision, and clearly they had, that that you are moving on from the coach. Well, first of all, they should have done it in the off season. I mean, it was pretty clear that when they did their evaluations at the end of last season, even though Boudreau had had such an impact after taking over from from Travis Green, they weren't completely sold on it. But I think the optics of removing him at that point because he'd been such a popular figure was such that they felt that they couldn't do that. And yet, I think that by their actions throughout this entire process, they've undermined him at every position. So that made it worse. If they had cut ties with him at the point where they had probably internally made the decision to do so, they would have had to deal with, with a short-term level of anger. But, you know, the reality is, you know, Florida did it with, with Andrew Brunette. You know, they were willing to, to, uh, to run afoul of the fan base for a short period of time because they felt that that, that was the, the move they had to make. We can debate whether Florida did the right thing or not uh, in, a, in a different conversation. But, you know, like all season long, it has felt that you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And that's just no way to operate a team. You know, the, the players can't get on the same page. Everybody's looking over their shoulders constantly waiting for a change to happen. And I think that's contributed to the fact that Vancouver has has played so, so poorly. They played hard for Boudreau, but they did not play particularly well. So you need to, to get everybody on the same page. And I think that probably is what's going to happen with Rick Tockett. And, and to your point, Haley, he does have a big job ahead of him because now he's got to win the, the, the players over. He has got to win the fan base over. He has to win everybody over. He's, he's going in there replacing an extremely popular coach. People are questioning what his record at the National Hockey League is is like, whether he is a, a better coach than, than Bruce Boudreau or simply different. Now, I've, I've been dealing with him for a long time. I personally think he's great. I think he's going to do a really good job there. He, he's a guy, he's, he's one of the most interesting people in the game, I find, because 
he has that rough around the edges persona. You know, you watch him on, on television and you get a, like a real sense of, of, of who he is. You know, like he's, he's like me, a Scarborough kid. And, uh, you know, and, and, and you, you know, like you have a certain, you know, I don't know, I don't want to say backbone, but, but just, you know, just a presence, right? You know, like you, you don't back down from, from, from things. And, and, but, but I also think he, he's, he, he's, he's a really good people person. So, you know, if, if you look at the relationships he's de- he developed with the players in Pittsburgh as an associate coach on Mike Sullivan's staff, they held him in, in high regard. And so I think he can very quickly win the core group over in Vancouver. I mean, players respect other players. He, he, he was hard nosed. He, he he scored a lot. He he made great plays. He fought a lot. Like he checks a lot of the boxes. So I, I think he'll get pretty quick credibility with the players in 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 the in the dressing room. So you know it, it's going to take some time to to get used to the new methods. But but he's you know he, he's a decent X's and O's coaches. He's a great relationships guy. I, I think he'll do a good job. And you know I guess the you know to wrap that up the, the larger point is. You know, like it, it, sports is a very fleeting world. And so, you know, the mistreatment of Boudreaux will, will fade in a week, in a month, in, in two months. And, and the evaluation of Taka will simply be based on, you know, did he make the team better? And, you know, we won't, we won't know the answer to that for a month, two months, end of this year, well into next year. And, and then, you know, we can have this conversation again in 12 months and, and start to get an idea whether this was the right decision or not. Yeah, and I think this is a team that's going to be, you know, now we have to look at the Vancouver Canucks and evaluate them, not based on what maybe us on the media or what the fans want, but what they say they are going to do. And Spurgeon Rutherford, it looks like they're going to try to retool on the fly and get competitive in, you know, the next two years or so. I think he said when our, you know, our pal Thomas Drance asked, you know, three years, is that realistic? He's like, oh, no, you know, that's generous. I think we can do it quicker than that. So that's what we will have to evaluate them on. Um, one of the other notes in, in one of your notebooks over the last week or so, Johnny Gaudreau made his much-anticipated return to Calgary with the Columbus Blue Jackets last night. And sure, the Flames added Jonathan Huberto and Nazem Kadri in separate moves in the offseason. But nobody on the Flames roster has really been able to step into Gaudreau's spot in the lineup in terms of that consistent production, the speed, the play driving. And it seems like you might have a couple of ideas on who the Flames could look at as a deadline acquisition to maybe check that box a little bit better than they, they might have in the summer. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, I don't think it, I'll be the first person to, to suggest that, that if you, if you examine the team, uh, you know, you find one fairly significant hole, which is, you know, who plays with, uh, with Huberto and Kadri, because, you know, the, the, I mean, their, their sort of bottom uh, tier production has been way better this year. Like, you know, when, when you think about how Backlund and, and Coleman play together and, you know, I think Van Japan has been there a fair bit lately, although of course everybody moves around, but I, you know, that, that's a really good line production from the fourth line has been far better this year than, than last year. And, and it looks like Lindholm to Foley and, and Dubé are, are you know finding their way. So it's not, you know, the luxury that Lindholm had last year of having two elite players on his wings, but still that's, that's, a, that's an effective line. So where's the hole? Well, you know, Milan Lucic is kind of the placeholder for the most part on that on that line, or has been. And and ideally, you want somebody to be able to finish those beautiful passes that that Huberto makes. So, you know, and, and I always preface it by saying, you know, this is a blue sky exercise at at this point in 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 the 
in the process because every general manager privately will rail against the salary cap and the challenges of the salary cap and 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 essentially you know trying to, to put off making these decisions until the last possible moment to get the the most effective player that you can so i mean the, the names that you know that uh, that i've put out there are you know are, are simply logical ones i mean anthony duclair would be on my list why he has a history with huberto i mean him and those two and, and bennett were a great five on five line together he scored 30 goals now you know what are the the issues well one he hasn't played yet he's coming off an, an, an achilles injury are those uh, serious yeah look at what's happened with max patcheretti so there's you know there's, there's a tremendous amount of risk involved in acquiring a player that that has not played yet this year is due to come back soon so you, you don't go out and make you can't go out and make that trade now you need him to come back and play and see and then hope that you know that two weeks in or four weeks in, he doesn't re-injure himself. So that's step one. You know, the second is examining where Florida is in the standings. To me, they look like a team, unbelievably, that, that is not going to make the playoffs. And, and it, it's extraordinary when you think about the kind of success they had in the regular season last year to think that they won't qualify in the top eight teams in the East. But, you know, they're, a, they're, you know, they're three points behind Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh has three games in hand. You know, they, they're playing better. Uh, Bobrovsky is going to miss a week, but he had picked up his game a little bit. So I think they're going to have, they are not going to make any decision themselves until they completely figure out what they are and whether they're in the playoff race. So until then, you know, they're not, they're not moving anybody out. And then the third thing is, is always acquisition costs. I think if Florida does go into a, seller mode at the trade then for sure they're going to want to recoup high draft choices especially first round picks because they they gave them all away last year to try and and win and so you know do you want to go that high for for a rental of a player that that has an injury history that's signed for this year next year at a pretty good number three million i don't know you know like i'd be more inclined to trade a b-level prospect for that so a, a hard deal to make for about three or four different reasons so an easier trade i think would be uh, someone like Vladimir Tarasenko. Uh, again, that depends on on St. Louis falling out of the playoff race. But as we've all noted with Doug Armstrong, who runs St. Louis, he is not afraid to make a bold move, even if it undermines the team. And he still thinks he can make the playoffs. You know, so they're sitting there, you know, six points back of of, of Calgary. They don't look like a playoff team to me. Tarasenko's coming back this week. Would he be a fit? I mean, he's a great sniper. Um, you know, I, I go back to Daryl Sutter. And the Kings in 2014, uh, you know, when they traded for Marion Gabrick from Columbus, I, I would tell you, Haley, when I saw that, it's like Gabrick with Daryl. Are you kidding? How is that going to work? Well, it worked out pretty well. He led the playoffs yeah. in goal scoring. So I think Tarasenko would be the same. I think if, if there was a way of getting Tarasenko here uh, with his personality, I, I think I think he would fit. You know, he'd have to wave his no move. He'd have to come to Canada. Nobody seems to want to do that. But but he's a guy that I think would be a really good fit there. And then if, you know, and those are two big swings and there would be an acquisition cost. And then if you can't get them, you know, is a guy like, you know, Max Comtois in Anaheim, who's, you know, uh, you know, kind of a, a prospect at one point that really looked like he had some big upside, hasn't been able to meet that, uh, that yet in, in Anaheim, Anaheim, I think other you know players uh, have, have surpassed him in terms of, uh, of the in you know the you know where they are on the on the depth chart, and so in the same way that you know Anaheim kind of let Sam Steele go, and, and he's been pretty good for for Minnesota. I wonder if Comtois, with his ability around the net, might not 
blossom there. And I think the acquisition costs would not be nearly as high. So those, those for me, those are the, the three names that you, you focus on. There, you know, there are others. You know, to me, you know, Van Reed, JVR, a little too slow. Great net front presence, but I don't know. I, you know, I think you probably want someone that plays with a little bit more pace uh, than him. But, you know, these are all, you know, food for thought ideas. And, you know, then we'll see where it, uh, you know, wh- where it goes and how it materializes. Anthony Duclair makes a ton of sense for the Flames. Obviously, if he comes back and he's healthy and he's playing well, he makes a ton of sense. But the problem with that is if you take a look, you know, on the athletic, we have the all 32s. You know, how many of our beat writers are saying that their team needs, you know, a quick scoring winger who can play in the top six? And Anthony Duclair fits that mold for a lot of teams. So that's when it comes to the whole cost conversation. It probably won't be cheap to to bring a guy in like Duclair, who's less than a year out from a 30 goal campaign. Uh, we've got a couple more minutes left with you, Eric. I know you mentioned uh, Max Comtois with the Anaheim Ducks. So let's just stick with Anaheim for the final few minutes here. Will a team actually give up a first round pick for John Klingberg? I, I think he's controlled a lot of the conversation, but I'm becoming a bit more interested in a guy like Adam Henrique coming out of Anaheim. Yeah. Well, um, it's a. Uh, I don't know. I don't think they would get it for uh, for Klinberg based on on his performance. You know, I, I see the Ducks quite a bit, and uh, and I do think that he's a guy that um, whose value is diminished. Uh, you know, people see a player that makes a ton of mistakes, and they play a very loosey goosey style in in Anaheim. And so, you know, it, you know, when you compare the way they play with the way. Calgary plays, you know, there's a part of you that thinks, you know, maybe in a, in a more structured system, he would be a more effective player. And he was in Dallas. I mean, when you think, when you look back and especially at his play in, in the playoff bubble, he, he was an effective player. So I, I think that, that there's risk attached to him, but there's also a reward. Um, but I just don't think that anyone is going to pony up uh, first. And I think that at some point Anaheim will realize that. And, and if you're asking me today to make a prediction, I think the price will be a second round draft choice. And, you know, Anaheim will justify it by saying, well, you know, we didn't really have an acquisition cost. We signed him as a free agent. So effectively, we get a second round pick for the cost of, you know, paying his salary for, for one year. Now, you're talking about Adam Henrique. I like Henrique as a player. I've always liked him. I, you know, I think he was an important contributor in in uh, New Jersey, you know, he's played a lot of time on that top line uh, in Anaheim. He's got some ability around the net. Um, uh, you know, he, he has finishing touches. There's a gravitas to him. So, like, he's a pro. He, he's a pro that can that can play in any system. Um, probably makes too much money. You know, Anaheim would have to would have to take some money back. But but I'm you know versatile too. I mean, he, he's a guy that's playing the wing right now, but can play center if you ever get into a, into a pinch. And, and that kind of versatility is something most teams that, you know, are entertain the idea of, of a long playoff run like to have, because, you know, you, all of a sudden, you know, you have a, a you know, a, a, a stretch of games where you lose one or two centers and now you've got no one to play. Well, if Adam Henrique is on your roster, just slide him right in the middle and, and away you go. So, yeah, no, I like him as a, as a possible candidate trying to make the money work. I think would be the the biggest issue there, though. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Uh, Lots of good food for thought, and we'll have to do this again. Thanks for coming on the show. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.
There goes Eric Zahatchik. I know he's he's working on something. He said he had lots of transcribing to do, and he was like, this will be a nice little break from from transcribing. So something new to come from Eric Zahatchik on The Athletic. He's been working a ton on the NHL 99 project, which is coming to a close as well, which is the ranking of the top 100 players in the NHL. Uh, that's all the time we have for today on Hockey Central on Sports at 960. We'll be back tomorrow at uh, 2 o'clock, the usual time for another edition of the show. Coming up next, you've got three hours of Flames Talk with Pat Steinberg this afternoon. Enjoy, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.